Hola y bienvenidos de nuevo al podcast oficial de American Enterprise Institute. For those who have not recently been out of the country, that is hello and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of AEI. I'm Matt Winesett, and I've returned from vacation. Match, thank you for not replacing me. We, we tried to have a coup while he was gone, but we failed to take over the studio quickly enough. I'm back. I came back. All right, we got a great show for you today. It's Derek Scissors. He is a resident fellow, resident scholar here at AEI in the Foreign and Defense Policy Studies Department, where he focuses on China and the Chinese economy, as well as other economic and foreign and defense policy issues. Derek is one of the go-to China people Probably anywhere. Of all time. He's he's a fantastic analyst in this kind of stuff. He knows more than pretty much, I know about anything ever combined. Yeah. He knows about the Chinese economy. Yeah, and he's out just out with a new report or an updated edition of the China Tracker where he tracks Chinese investment overseas. The really, Chi- China Global Investment Tracker. Yeah, we'll link to it in the show notes. So we talked a little bit about, about that and the recent news that according to official statistics, China's economy is now growing at its slowest uh, rate in several decades. And so we got his opinion on that, China's Belt and Road Initiative, all things China, and Michigan football. And without further ado, here is Derek Scissors. Derek, thank you for coming on Banter today. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this on July 18th, and earlier this week we learned that China's economy grew at 6.2%, which is sounds pretty high, but is actually their slowest rate in almost three decades. Is the growth slowing, is that because of their current trade war, or is it long-term causes? Uh, let me give you a minor correction and use that to answer the question. China last reported growth this low in the first quarter of 2009, Mm. meaning they're saying now their economy is as weak as it was at the worst point of the financial crisis for them. Uh, They were lying back then. Um, But what they did and why we know they were lying is they sent a lot of credit from state banks into the Chinese economy, mostly to state-owned firms. So they lent more, they invested more, and there was no money to be had because we were in a downturn. That debt is hanging over China. That's what's causing their slowdown. It's not the trade conflict with the United States. It's the mistakes they made, especially in 2009. So how serious of an issue is this for China? The slowdown? Yeah. Uh, it's obviously a political embarrassment. Uh, Xi Jinping has an enormous ego and thinks he, you know, he's delivering China into the modern world. And meanwhile, growth is slowing and he can't do anything about it. It's not a threat to political instability. Uh, people, we used to worry about China's growth rate being high enough when there were a lot of people coming in the labor force. The labor force is now shrinking. China is now an aging country rather than a country getting younger. And so there are plenty of jobs, um, even with slower growth. So, at the level of political embarrassment, it makes China look bad. At the level of there's going to be trouble for the party, it's not a problem. So for the non-China experts, like people listening, like myself, definitely, 6% still seems like an insanely high growth rate. How with all this debt and their population now in decline, or not in decline, but their population mm-hmm. problems, how are they still clocking in this high growth? Well, the simple answer is they're lying, and it's not 6%. Um, now, that's that's that simple because then the question is, well, what is it really? And we have a hard time telling. But what the Chinese tend to do is they don't tell you the truth when things are bad. So, for example, in the first quarter of 2016, things were bad, but China didn't report it. This, the timeline of China's GDP growth is incredibly smooth. It's this very gradual slowdown. It's, it's a lie. How bad are things now? Not that bad. The challenge for China is not that, oh, things are terrible right now. It's that China, and this is something most people don't know, China itself reported disposable income last year at $4,100, which is about one-tenth, one-eleventh the U.S. level. People think of China as being rich. It's not. It's poor. 
And when you are growing, let's say you're really growing at three to 4% and you're poor, you're not making up ground. You're not getting to where you need to go. So that's where the debt and the aging problems are coming in. It's not that China is about to face some sort of catastrophe. It's that they're never going to become a rich country. Yeah, that's right. So Greg, the Wall Street Journal columnist, had a column this week where he says a similar thing. He says, a recession or crisis may not be imminent, but the long-run implications are just as serious. Absent a change in direction, China may never become rich. I feel like for the last five, 10 years, just I mean, I was in college for most of the time. I always heard about professors, people in class say, China's model might be superior, superior to our own model. Now it sounds like people are taking the complete opposite tack. Yeah, well, I've been taking the opposite tack for a long time. Uh, it's nice to have Greg on my side. He wasn't there a couple of years ago. Look, as I said, I, I saw the turning point in about 2003 when the Chinese moved away from competition and more back to the state. But you didn't see the harm of that until 2008, 2009. So global demand falls. China has been selling a ton to the global market. And what it does instead of saying, oh, we need to become more productive. We need to become more efficient. We need to reform. It's like, let's just borrow a lot of money. Our banks will lend. Our firms will borrow. They've never gotten off that track. So people who thought in 2008 China had the better model, um, by 2011, 12, they should have changed their minds. A lot of people didn't. But we have seen the worst debt accumulation on record by any country from China in the last 10 years. At the same time, they're having demographic problems, which are self-imposed, I mean, the past, uh, but they don't know how to solve. They've destroyed their land base with pollution and, and, uh, and overuse of, of resources. So, I mean, people think that China's model is superior. They're 10 years out of date. Um, and if you heard it five years ago, that means you, got, you had some bad professors. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> we went to the same school, yeah, so that on both of us. Max and I had similar professors, so um, mine were better. But um, <laughs> what are the implications of the debt issue? Like banks going under? Okay, so that's a good question. China does not have a commercial financial system. There's a guy, uh, a big China bull, is always saying everything's better than than it seems, and he and I still agree on this point. China's banks are not really banks; they're arms of the Chinese government, and so you don't have banks failing and bank runs and people showing up and saying, I want my savings. Uh, you know, you don't have counterparty risk. It's mostly one arm of the state lending to another arm of the state. And if you get orders to lend, you lend. You don't say, oh, I don't think you're credit worthy. That's not an option. Mm -hmm. So that kind of crisis that people always want to talk about when you say China has a lot of debt is not going to happen. The problem is China has wasted trillions of dollars. It started at hundreds of billions. Now it's trillions. And when you're a middle-income country and you want to become rich, you can't just throw away trillions of dollars. So the impact, as I suggested before, is not a financial crisis. It's that we used to think, okay, a lot of people thought China was going to become rich, and I thought they might. Then I thought they didn't. Some people thought they might. We're moving towards it's done. They're not going to become rich because countries with a lot of debt that are old don't grow. Yeah, we had Nicholas Eberstadt on a few <laughs> months ago, and he had a similar point that with the working population about to shrink, they're going to become old way before they become rich. So how is the trade war affecting this? We're in an era now where it seems like Republicans and Democrats both are starting to think China might be a geopolitical enemy. Is the trade war... Is that hurting them significantly, or is it not having much of an effect compared to these other factors? The trade war doesn't really matter to the big things we've been talking about, which is China's development success. China's a big country. It's the second largest economy after us. Trade doesn't matter nearly as much to China as it did 15 years ago. So when you're talking about, will China become rich? No, but it's not because of the trade. What trade matters to is China's global footprint. There's something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China reaching out to mostly the developing world and saying, hey, we want to be your partner. We want to build infrastructure so that it'll help global trade. It'll help us. It'll help you. I mean, whether that's true or not is a different story. But that's funded by hard currency. Other countries don't want Chinese renminbi. They want dollars or euros. 
the trade war affects China's dollars and euros because the biggest source of China's hard currency is the merchandise trade surplus with the U.S. That hasn't started to shrink yet. With all this talk about, oh my God, the trade wars are terrible, we're still running a bigger deficit with China than we did a year ago. But if it does start to shrink, it takes away China's money for the Belt and Road, for buying weapons overseas, for all the things it wants to do globally. So China's own development path is set by China. China's global footprint can be influenced by this trade war and by the United States. So should we keep it going then, keep the tariffs in place? I've never supported the tariffs. Uh, what I want to do is actually probably you know more provocative. So it's not... I'm not. There are a lot of people walking around saying, well, tariffs are a bad idea. And you say, well, what would you do instead? I got to go. Appointment. They don't have any other uh, proposal. They want to criticize China and then say tariffs are bad. And then we're supposed to talk it out, which is absurd. The reason I don't like tariffs, the main reason I don't like tariffs is we're responding to China stealing intellectual property or coercing the transfer of intellectual property. So we should find the firms that have benefited from that and crush them. I mean, we should really crush them. We shouldn't smack them. We should crush them and say, okay, go ahead and steal your intellectual property. This is the result. We're going to do everything we can to drive your firms out of business, which may or may not work, but we should be doing our best. What do tariffs do? They punish everybody. If, if, if one of you guys is stealing technology and the other one isn't, you get him with the same tariff. The one who isn't is going to be like, well, I might as well try to steal technology. I'm getting punished anyway. So we've chosen a collective punishment which distributes the pain to everyone, whereas what we should be doing is concentrating the pain on the, on the worst actors in China. And we have actors we can hit. Is Huawei the worst, or is that just um, well? Huawei gets attention because the military is very concerned about telecommunications, which I, you know, I'm not a military expert. I'm granting them that. I, I'm more concerned about semiconductors. Huawei was a terrible actor on IP 10, 15 years ago. The Chinese built their IP, their technology industry on IP theft. They stole it from Nortel, which is a Canadian company you two have never heard of because the Chinese killed it. Mm. They stole it from Motorola, which used to be a very important American company, is now a subsidiary of a Chinese company. <clears throat> They're stealing now from Ericsson or very recently from Ericsson. And Huawei got all that stolen IP. So if we wanted to punish past IP violators, Huawei could be very well number one on the list. If we want to focus on the future, no, because Huawei is now a big company with a lot of revenue that spends its own money. I would focus on semiconductor firms instead. So it's a, it's a question of whether you, you want to be angry at what was done in the past, and there's legitimate reasons to be angry, then Huawei's the good, a good target. If you want to focus on what the Chinese are stealing now, you wouldn't focus on telecom. Do you think it was a mistake in hindsight now to let China into the WTO after 99 or 2000? The first event I ever did at AI before I worked here, we, that topic came up, and everybody criticized me for saying it was a mistake. I did not think that at the time. I thought it was a good idea. And what happened in retrospect is the Chinese government we were negotiating with got replaced by a Chinese government that was very different, and that government got replaced by a worse Chinese government. So we've had deterioration. We were negotiating with a bunch of reformers, and... Then we got people who weren't interested in reform, but they weren't really aggressive about you know, uh, predatory policies. And now we have Xi Jinping, who wants to be dictator for life and is extremely aggressive about harmful policies to the US. So in retrospect, it was a mistake. But that's because we didn't realize China could go backward this much in terms of its government. Why do you think they did? Because I, I wasn't the thinking that economic liberalization would lead to political liberalization, not the opposite, which appears to have, have happened in China? That was a sell job by a bunch of people who wanted to make money. Uh, and I, that, I, like I said, I, nobody cared what I thought in 2001 <laughs> or 1999, except a few clients. But I, I was in favor of China's WTO entry at the time. So I don't want to exaggerate like, oh, I knew it all the time. Yeah. But I wasn't in favor of it because they were, government was going to be get, getting better. I was in favor of it because the Communist Party at that time saw reform as, as valuable. China reformed on its own. It didn't reform because of us. Mm -hmm. It reformed because the party thought in 1978, 79, we need to reform. 
That's who we were dealing with. The idea that China was going to come democratic was something sold as like, oh, no, I know they make you uncomfortable, but just vote for it anyway because they're going to become democratic. That was foolish. We, that doesn't mean that Xi Jinping was inevitable. A previous leader, Hu Jintao, was not this kind of a dictator. He left office voluntarily. He wasn't a great guy or anything, but he walked off the stage. The guy before that, Jiang Zemin, walked off the stage. This guy doesn't want to walk off the stage. He has no successor. So, you know, there was a reason to let China and WTO. It wasn't they were going to go into democratize. We couldn't have anticipated they would get this bad. They would go back to a Maoist type figure. But that was a risk and we ignored it. Has the reformist branch of the Communist Party been crushed? Yes. Look, everyone's like, well, I went to China and I talked to some reformers who are in government. Like, okay, I've been doing that for 20 years. Tom Friedman talked to a cab driver. Yeah. (laughs) And there was somebody at the airport and the airport was really clean and all that. Um, There are reformers in China. Of course there are, just like the people in the United States who disagree with, with various economic policies. But they have not won a major battle for 15 years. Not just under Xi. They didn't win major battles before that. They didn't win major battle in 2009. They didn't win it in, at the 2003 third plenary meetings where they usually announced reforms. So, yes, it's been crushed. Can you still go and have meetings with Beijing with somebody who wants to reform? Of course you can. Do they ever win policy disputes? No. So what is China trying to do itself now? There's also a Noah Smith column in Bloomberg earlier where the title was China is the biggest protectionist threat. And he said in that column that China itself is trying to deglobalize, become less dependent on global supply chains and just become more autarkic generally. Do you agree with that? And is that something we should encourage? Because it seems like Trump also wants us to pull out our supply chains from China. I I hate answering questions about Uh, (laughs) op-eds. Sorry. Uh, That's not a very deep view of anything, which is, of course, impossible to present in an op-ed. The Chinese version of globalization is not the version that the rest of us signed up for. It's a version where China brings to it whatever the Communist Party thinks it needs as the most important economic activity, and everybody else deals. You can compete. China should be able to compete with any firm in any sector in the American market, but you can't compete with any Chinese state-owned enterprises. They, they never go out of business for commercial reasons, and that's 2025 sectors. So. I'm happy that if they want to, like, cut back on globalization, I don't think they do. I think they want their kind of globalization. They've never wanted our kind of globalization. So that's the Chinese situation. On our side, I I think it's more complicated because I was more in favor of globalizing than I am now. And the answer was when we were trying to create a lot of wealth in this country, globalization was a way to create wealth. Now we're in a situation where we have people who don't seem to be coming back into the labor force, even though we have very low unemployment. We have much higher income inequality than at the start of the Obama administration. Everyone blames Trump. Income inequality rose year after year after year under Obama. That wasn't what he was trying to do. That's just what happened. So I think we have to think more about balance uh, in the distribution of gains than we had in the past. Uh, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Even 15 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I think the problem starts about the financial crisis. The Chinese are always doing what they always did, which is globalization on Chinese terms. I got one more question before we switch to the China tracker and talking about that. But in terms of supply chains, in the you know medium term, is it possible for us, for our companies to switch supply chains from China to the other Asian economies or not really? Sure it is. I mean, look, what we've got is a bunch of companies saying, oh, no, my profits are going to go down. I don't care. And then the ones that get to the White House are the ones who have a large you know, share of the stock market. And then the president listens to them because he cares about the stock market. In the year 2000, I know you guys don't remember that very well, we were just fine without the Chinese and without Chinese supply chains. Our companies were fine. Our economy was fine. 
look, there's going to be a transition and it's not going to happen like that. And some companies are going to lose some of their profit margins because they located in China to maximize profits. But can we do it? Of course we can. We moved our production from the United States to Japan. Then we moved it from Japan to the rest of East Asia. Then we moved it into China. We can absolutely move it out of China. It would happen anyway. We're just speeding it up. So the answer is, are there going to be costs to pay? To pay? Yes. They're mostly going to be paid by companies that gain the most benefits from this. So that works out fine. Can it happen in a year? No, not in a good way. But over five years, seven years, absolutely. It can happen. It should happen. All right. So it's Max Match. And do you also do work on the China tracker, tracking Chinese investment elsewhere? I've heard a lot about, I'm not in the foreign affairs department here, but I've heard a lot about the Ch- uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Can you just briefly describe for the listeners what that is and if we should be concerned about it. So the Belt and Road starts off, Xi Jinping announces this, and it's a big thing associated with him. So the Chinese lie about it all the time because they never want to report back to him that something bad happened with his Belt and Road Initiative. He announces it in fall 2013, and it makes a lot of sense. China is accumulating more and more of that hard currency I mentioned before. U.S. Treasuries are paying like half a percent. What are they going to do with the money? So he's like, why don't we go out and buy political influence? And, you know, if you can spend some money improving railways and improving trade, great. That's great, too. Mm. But he's finding an outlet for all this money. Shock to him and to me, actually. In spring of 2014, China stops bringing in all the money. And the reason is people have decided that Xi Jinping is bad for the private sector in China. And they're sending money overseas. So China goes from the biggest uh, balance of payments surplus country in history to a balance of payments balance. Right? It's not a lot. It's not. It's bringing in a lot of money, but also a lot of money is leaving. And in fact, for periods of time in 2015, 2016, it was a deficit country, and money left. So she starts off with this grand vision of we can spend a ton of money because we have all this extra money, and we can build roads and rail and ports and power plants, which they're already building. You know, prior to the BRI. Um, and we can build them in, in, our, in countries that are friendly to us. And so 60-some countries join up. Now it's more than twice that many who are affiliated with the BRI. But the big change is China doesn't have the money anymore. When they started this, they had more money than they have now, and it seemed like it was rising forever. I thought that too. Perfectly understandable mistake. Mr. Xi, don't send the person who suggested this to you to a concentration camp. <laughs> they, were okay. they, were, they were right to think that. Re-education. <laughs> uh, my apologies. Now they have less money, but more importantly, the trend is downward pressure from this capital outflow, from their declining competitiveness due to higher labor land costs, from pressure from the U.S. So now there are twice, more than twice as many countries in the BRI who say, hey, I'd love for you to help us build this uh, road or to help us build this power plant or to help us build this low-income housing. Your companies are good at it. You'll lend us the money. There's some problems there. But I mean, I'm still interested and the Chinese don't have the money. Um, So the BRI is a Chinese political move to take Chinese hard currency, which they used to have a ton of, and improve their relationships with other countries by essentially doing favors for other countries. What's People talk about debt traps and so on. What's really happened is not that other countries have run out of money. It's that China's run out of money. But what about Sri Lanka? I mean, everyone talks about Sri Lanka and (laughs) other places in Africa. Is I mean, are, is it as predatory as people make it out to be, or is that just kind of poor management by the host countries? I, I think it's primary. Look, I'm very critical of China. I hope that's come out. Mm-hmm. I take the shot at Xi Jinping about his re-education camps. I think it's primarily the host countries. I mean, yeah. look at most of these countries. They're desperate for capital, and that's why they turn to the Chinese. Why are they desperate for capital? Because no one will give them any because they're bad risks. Um, Sri Lanka wanted to build a bunch of infrastructure that no one will use. So the only person <laughs> who's going to give that money to them is China. 
Um, now, if you want to say China's real strategy here is to relocate the, is to confiscate the assets and turn it into military for military use for the Chinese, okay, fine. But you can only do that if the country foolishly invites you in to build something that has no value and then borrows money and can't pay it back. So the Chinese, let's, let's take an extreme example. Everyone focused on Sri Lanka, but more clarifying is Venezuela. The Venezuelans owe the Chinese at least $35 billion, and it could be considerably higher. That's not a win for China. The Chinese aren't going, woo, we blew $35 billion on Venezuela. That's so great. It's a, a country that didn't know how to manage itself, obviously, borrowing a ton of money from the Chinese and not being able to ever pay it back. And so that's $35 billion down the drain. And the Chinese could have used that someplace else that would be more valuable. So uh, I don't believe in, in the debt trap. There are, pro there are predatory Chinese companies and predatory Chinese government, but the primary problem on, on the debt side is the hosts. That reminds me a little bit. I think there's a quote from our president himself who says, if you owe the bank $10 million, they, owe you, they own you. But if you owe them $10 trillion, you own the bank. So Yeah, that's kind of an updated version of an older <laughs> quote with smaller amounts of money, which yeah. I think was due to J.P. Morgan, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the numbers. Um, I'm like an Austin Powers when he demands $1 million, and it's nowhere near what he thinks it is. <laughs> anyway, well, so I, I hear a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative, and as someone that's not super knowledgeable about it, and people act like it's a big threat, is there, should the U.S. have some sort of counter strategy where we kind of have our own, where we invest and develop closer ties with other nations? I don't think it's a big threat. And like I said, it started off as one thing and it's a different thing now. So people are kind of reacting to a, a, a peak on our numbers. On the, so the China Global Investment Tracker follows Chinese investment in construction around the world. $100 million in up transactions only, but we have 3,000 some of them. So, and it's all public. So we see the peak is 2016, maybe 2017, clear decline in 2018, clear decline so far in 2019. It's heading in the direction of being less important. For the U.S., even if it was important, and, and it's still going to be important in some places. China spends a lot of money in Pakistan. It spends a lot of money in certain countries around the world. Do we care? Right? Does the Chinese want to throw money down the Pakistani drain? Does that matter to us? Now, I, I'm, I'm an econ person. I'm not a foreign policy person either, so maybe we should ask Max. I don't care. In general, the Chinese have very different international interests than we do involving commodities extraction. They need energy from overseas. We don't really anymore. They need metals from overseas. We haven't needed those for decades because we have a different kind of economy. They need food from overseas. We are a big, the world's largest by far food exporter. They need the Belt and Road, the transportation links, and the power to generate the smelting plants and so on in these countries because they need that stuff, and we don't. So my first reaction is like, why would we create our own Belt and Road? What do we need from these countries? I'd rather be signing, let's say in Sub-Saharan Africa, Let's start negotiating and signing bilateral free trade agreements. Or regional, if that works. It probably won't, but bilateral at least. These countries aren't going to hurt the U.S. It'll help them. That's our approach, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Chinese approach for us doesn't make any sense. So is it mostly commodity-driven, what we're seeing now with the BRI? Uh, it's, I mean, what the Chinese mostly do in countries, even more than build transportation links, is build power plants. So um, it's energy-driven. You know, they, they want, they're looking for oil, they're looking for gas. Some extent, places they're looking for coal. There's also some metals, uh, aluminum, copper, iron ore. Uh, China accounts for about half the world's iron ore trade by itself. So, uh, you know, I, it is commodities-driven in my opinion, but if the activity is not commodities, the activity is building power plants and building transport links, why did they start this? They wanted to secure trade with these countries. What's the important thing about trade with these countries? It's not China selling a ton to a poor country. It's getting the commodities out. So is this at all comparable to the Cold War, where every time the Soviets developed a client state or increased their influence in a state, we took that as a loss to us? 
I hope not. Not because, again, I'm not soft on China. I want to hit them harder in many ways than tariffs. I want to respond very strongly where our interests are threatened. I just think the Chinese don't try to overthrow local governments. They try to work with anyone. It doesn't matter. You kill people, we work with you. You get replaced by a government that hated you, you, the original government, we'll work with a new government. It doesn't. They work with Sudan and South Sudan, like two countries that couldn't possibly hate each other anymore, and the Chinese work with both of them. So they're not going around fomenting communist revolution. There are things they want from these countries that may not be in our interest. But what I think is wrong, and maybe this is part of my objection to globalization, <clears throat> there's no reason for the U.S. to care about the whole world. We should care where places that matter to our national security, that matter to our economy, where there are terrible human rights violations. But in a lot of the world, that's not true. If the Chinese want to have a big um, iron ore deal with Brazil, fine. We don't need iron ore from Brazil. Let them have the deal. Don't worry about it. We need to focus on our own priorities rather than, as you were suggesting, reacting to what they're doing. So what about uh, what are we seeing with like the Philippines, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, countries that we're kind of competing with influence for? All right. So a fair counter to that is fine. Most of the world, we shouldn't be having knee-jerk reactions. But for example, the Philippines is a U.S. treaty ally that matters to our defense posture, has historical ties in the United States. And by the way, it has 100 million people and is reporting relatively fast growth. It's an intriguing economy. It's also run by a crazy person, but that you know, putting that aside. Uh, so what do we do when the Chinese are coming in there promising the Filipinos lots of money? Well, one thing we should do is we should track the fact that they now often don't deliver. Um, <clears throat> but they're still in there pitching, and we're not. I, I mean, I'd rather try to negotiate an FTA with the Philippines. Uh, I happen to know this from my time a long time ago, literally before you guys were born. When I was working at the Defense Department as someone about your age, we gave a ton of aid to the Philippines. It never did any good. Right, so I'm just these 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 financial transfers, the loans, uh, even the projects that the Chinese finish, they all stop. What I really want is an enduring, long, you know, better relationship. So maybe our, the thing we should do is we should go to the Philippines and say, "Hey, you're a big pain in the neck to deal with on trade because of this is the biggest issue. We're just going to give in on this issue. The rest of the agreement has to be high standard, but on this issue, we're going to give in. That's our counter to the Chinese. Because one, I don't want to be spending taxpayer money on the Philippines, and two, when we've done that in the past, it hasn't worked. I don't think it's going to work for China either. I'd rather get back in the game with the Philippines and other such countries with liberalization." And maybe we have to liberalize a little bit more on their terms than we'd like for strategic reasons. But that's the better tr attempt to make than like, hey, $60 billion, we'll give $10 billion to the Philippines. It hasn't worked before. It's not going to work for the Chinese. So in 2021, if there's a new president, do you expect or would you hope to see a TPP revitalized? Because wasn't that supposed to hem in China? Economically? Yeah. Look, so uh, I don't know how many people you have listening to you, but I'll bet millions. a lot of money, even with millions, that I'm the <laughs> only one who actually read the TPP. The TPP is not a good document, and you know it was not a good document because the way the Obama administration talked about it was was making the rules. It was like a strategic move against China, like economic benefits. Is it, are you going to mention these at all? And the answer is there weren't any for the United States. It wasn't the worst agreement of all time. It wasn't going to destroy the American economy. It was just a big blah. So I'd, I want, I'd much rather have a good bilateral partial agreement with Japan, which we have a chance at in a month. I'm not sure we're going to get it. And maybe I might be like, well, this doesn't do anything or it's too small. I'd rather have building blocks 
that are smaller and sound than go for the sweeping agreement where we give away too much so we can get everybody on board and then say, look, we have a giant agreement which doesn't have an economic function. It has a political function, but not an economic function. You don't pressure the Chinese by rules that are so watered down that they could easily make uh, follow them themselves. China could join the TPP in terms of implementation easily. It's not a problem. So I do want us, if it's in 2021, to say to the Philippines, what do we need to do to get an FTA with you? To say to the Indonesians, uh, to say to the Vietnamese, if that would go through Congress, which it might or might not. Certainly to say it to Japan, to upgrade our deal with Australia. Those are great trade initiatives. The TPP was a weak trade document. Um, the political goals were fine, but it wasn't going to hem in the Chinese. So don't, don't water down what you're trying to do for the sake of a political gain. You, you put pressure on China with good practices, which were... They weren't absent in the TPP, but they were they were pretty weak. Um, I think we're probably just about out of time here. Yeah. Um, one last question, if it's possible for you to prophesize. <laughs> if you were coming back here, if you're thinking 50 years in the future, China is gonna is it gonna have to reform at some point, or just or collapse, or just kind of stagnate? 50 years is a really tough call. Here's the story: we know where China is going over 20 years because it's going to age and it's going to continue to accumulate debt and it's going to stagnate. And we also know that's not really a threat to the party. Um, A famous quote that a very senior at the time, he's now retired, Chinese official gave me was like, he's listening to me do my spiel. And he's like, yeah, 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 fine. Old people don't riot. Yeah. You get to the point where you're an old country, you're not going to have riots overthrowing the Communist Party. So that's the generation to come that Nick Eberstack, you know, talked about with you before and knows very well. The generation after that is really hard to predict. Is China going to suddenly have a lot of bursts at some point? We just don't know that, that kind of cycle. If China just ages, it'll be stuck in middle income. It'll be a big country. The party will continue to rule. And, you know, we have a status. The status quo is maintained. If there's some sort of dynamic where they have problems replacing Xi Jinping, there's some sort of fight over it, or they are successful in getting people to have more kids, maybe by coercive practices, the way they get them to stop having more kids, then you could get a very different China that is forced to reform. China reformed be, you know, under pressure because of a cultural revolution and a gang of four in Mao's death. That's the kind of reform you need. That's the kind of pressure you need for the party to change. I don't see that happening for 20 years. But when you talk about 50, there's a lot more on the table. All right, final, final question. You are a uh, Michigan fan, right? Yes, I is, am. Is, can they finally beat Ohio State this year, please? Uh, we can. Uh, we have a very narrow margin for error in terms of injuries on the defensive side. I, I, sorry, I'm going to talk for 20 minutes about this. <laughs> um, look, honestly, if you have to bet, you have to bet on Ohio State. Yeah. If the game were being played first game out of the shoot and we were healthy, I'd bet on us. But they always seem to like, oh, every team has injuries, and Ohio State replaces its players with great players, and we replace our, play- our injuries with not as great players, and then you see the outcome. So thank you for asking that question and depressing me. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Urban Meyer's gone now. So that, <laughs> yes, that, no, that, 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 that is a plus. We have a shot, um, a probably the best shot we've had in the last five years, but things have to go right for us. Uh, otherwise, it'll be back to the talent level. All right. I'll be reading for him. Go Blue. Go Blue. Uh, Derek, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you, Derek, and thank you all for listening. As we say every time, and we finally are getting some responses, please and thank you for leaving a review, a comment, telling your friends, anything you can think of. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever, and leave us a review or send us an email at banter at AEI.org. We did have some positive or negative or thought-provoking comments, at the very least, from a couple previous episodes. Max, why don't you uh, read one out? 
Yeah, so this this comes from Brian Kelly. Thank you, Brian. Brian says that there is absolutely no doubt now that the majority of Americans want to completely legalize marijuana nationwide. Our numbers grow on a daily basis. The prohibitionist 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 view of marijuana is the viewpoint of a minority and rapidly shrinking percentage of Americans is based upon decades of lies and propaganda. Each and every tired old lie they have propagated has been thoroughly proven false by both science and society. Their tired old rhetoric no longer holds any validation. The vast majority of Americans have seen through the sham of marijuana prohibition in this day and age. The number of prohibitionists left shrinks on a daily basis. With their credibility shattered and their not-so-hidden agendas visible to a much wiser public, what's left for a marijuana prohibitionist to do? Maybe just come to term with the fact that marijuana legalization nationwide is an inevitable reality that's approaching much sooner than prohibitionists think, and there is nothing they can do to stop it. Legalize nationwide and support all (laughs) marijuana legalization efforts. Thank you, Brian. It sounds like Brian should have been on the podcast. I know. Well, Brian, to answer your your question, what are they to do? It's come on banter. (laughs) (laughs) Banter is the last refuge of scoundrels for... uh, prohibitionists nationwide, I guess. I don't know if I agree with that. Also, that comment, I cannot help but think of, you know, just Dwight Schrute in the office giving his Mussolini-inspired speech, banging on the desk, saying the (laughs) wave of the future is inevitable. Bow down to legalization. Uh, I think, I mean, Brian's probably right. It probably will be legalized at some point. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong, Brian. I don't know if I'm in a shrinking, ever-shrinking minority, though, of people that aren't super gung-ho to... uh, it on as someone there's this great quote i think james fitz james stephen this british jurist talking about something else but he had this great quote where he said the something along the lines of the waters are out and the rivers are flowing but i see no reason to go with the tide and sing hallelujah the river god i feel that way about marijuana legalization i mean it seems inevitable but i don't i don't i don't think we have to you know cheer it from the sideline that's fair yeah too bad you replaced me last week i would have loved to talk to alex barons about this myself I appreciated the comment that we got from the Synthonian over at Ricochet about the Brent Orell podcast, who says, it's not, quote, government funded, it's taxpayer funded. I'm surprised the representatives of a, quote, conservative think tank would take such an idea seriously. Yeah, I think he's targeting you, Max, and your propagation of uh, yeah, which, which government-funded colleges. I'm I'm open to the criticism. I do one of my favorite things. I, I love when journalists write and they say taxpayer-funded instead of government-funded. Yeah. I agree with that completely. The only honest thing to do. Yeah, because it is, that's what it is. Yeah. But at the same time, well, well, I will put a little bit of nuance here. Pretty much every, I mean, how much of our budget's paid out of for debt? Well, that's, the comic goes on to say that the national debt is already staggering, and about to be even more so if they just got this debt deal push through. Yeah, well, this is something that I know you and I have talked about, too. Does the debt even matter anymore? I know we have our own thoughts on it. No one seems to care. Nobody seems to care about the debt. We Um, care at AI. People at AI care. People at AI care. to be losing the battle in the the public mind. Yeah, well, the thing with the education, too, is, like I said to you when we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, um, in Germany, they have have a balanced budget, I think, amendment in the Constitution. Mm. They have to have a balanced budget, and they also provide very cheap, if not free, public education um, up to the higher second. Yeah, well, the Germans are productive, but it also helps that the entire German national defense is 
underwritten by the United States. So then yeah, if, if we didn't have, I mean, if, if the British Navy was able to, you know, protect our entire defense budget, then we could probably pour it into college. But yeah, I'm, leader, I'm, I'm, I'm not the leader I'm, of the free world. We've got responsibilities. I'm, I'm not even saying that we should do that, but I'm saying there is a conversation that could be had. Uh, I think Brent Worrell himself said that there's some other models that may be worth looking at. I can't remember if he said it or a different guy. I think, I, I think Brent said it. Um, there are some other decent models out there. Yeah, and uh, we've got some great guys at the AEI Education Department that are working on stuff like this, college debt refinancing and things of that nature. So check it out. AEI, just Google AEI Education. I know Jason Delisle and Greg Cass do some great work on college. Anyway, thanks for sticking with us this long if you already have, or if not, I don't blame you. Uh, we'll be back next week with our guest. Who is it? Gary Schmidt on what is a neoconservative and is the label still useful and what does it mean in foreign policy and otherwise. I have a lot of thoughts on this and I know Gary Schmidt does too. He's a great article out in the Atlantic, inter- no, in the American interest. So read that beforehand to uh, sufficiently <laughs> prepare yourself for this podcast. <laughs> Other than that, thanks for listening and adios amigos. Adios amigos.